This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And good afternoon to the beautiful city of London. I'm Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow. He's got the day off. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. Just gone 5 p.m. in the city of London. Quick check of your markets. We have got the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ in the United States, all advancing to new records. A mixed picture really for European stocks. Uh, the FTSE 100 lower, little change down by one-tenth of one percent on this Monday, down eight points. The CAC 40 in Paris up 11, showing a gain there of two two-tenths of one percent. The DAX in Germany also higher by 11 points, a gain there of just about one-tenth of one percent. As for U.S. equity markets, uh, we have got the S&P up two points, uh, close to a record right now. 25.55 up by about one-tenth of one percent remains to be seen. The Dow closing in on 23 Keep in mind that uh, we are 30 years beyond uh, the crash of 1987, that anniversary this week. The Dow at 22,909, up two-tenths of one percent. And NASDAQ higher by 13 points, up by two-tenths of one percent. Well, as always, on a Monday, lots going on. We begin with our top story, really the top story that we have had uh, ever since the Brexit vote. And uh, according to a person familiar with the matter, if Brexit negotiations don't progress to trade at this week's summit of European leaders, the entire Brexit process will be in danger of collapse. Prime Minister May trying to break the deadlock negotiation. She's in Brussels to personally intervene in the talks. The latest round hit an impasse last week over how much the UK will have to pay to leave the European Union. Well, joining us now to talk about uh, what is happening with Brexit negotiations, we've got Bloomberg Gantfly columnist Marcus Ashworth and Michael Hewson, chief market analyst for CMC Markets in London, no stranger to Bloomberg Radio and Television. Uh, Michael, let me begin with you. First of all, markets, how closely are they watching Prime Minister May's trip to uh, to, uh, Brussels? Well, yeah, good afternoon, Charlie. Well, judging by the reaction of the cable, not very much, um, because you would have expected a headline like that to get a knee-jerk reaction in the pound. And really, we haven't really moved that much. There was an initial initial spike lower um, when when that statement came out, that UK sees Brexit breakdown if EU refuses to compromise. But ultimately, the pound has since recovered, and I think there is an almost um, ambivalent attitude that ultimately... Um, we will see some form of compromise. And I think it's quite a sensible policy to adore, sensible um, attitude to have, because ultimately the EU, if talks break down right here, right now, lose that 20 billion euros that Theresa May promised in the aftermath of the UK leaving the EU in March 2019, which means that they would have to go back and try and fund that gap from the existing members. And I don't think that's something that they would want to do. Uh, Marcus, uh, to Michael's point about the lack of movement that we're seeing in Sterling, what does that suggest to you about where these talks stand and the possibility that things could collapse? Um, I'm not sure Sterling is quite as useful as it perhaps once was. I, I'm looking more actually now at the gilt market, perhaps to be uh, the real bellwether on whether or not people are, are getting worried about what's happening with the overall uh, developments with Brexit. I mean, on, on this particular point, Theresa May is, is 
over in Brussels with a very delicate balancing act. She knows that everything she says is going to get reported back um, into the, probably the German newspapers the following day. Uh, Juncker has already admitted there's going to be an autopsy of this. This is not a closed process. However, if she doesn't go and play tough right here, right now, she loses the right wing of her party, which is possibly catastrophic for her. So she has to almost go to the Europeans and say, please don't tell the press, but if you don't <laughs> compromise here, um, I'm going to lose the balance and we, and we are going to be pushed down more of a hard Brexit approach, which you don't want. So throw me a bone, of which most likely she'll be told to... Um, go away, thank you very much, but no interest, because I don't think the German, particularly German-led side, is prepared to compromise at the moment. Michael, if you were a, a betting man, what would you assess now as the odds of a, a so-called hard Brexit? Well, I think it's 50-50. Uh, I, think it re I think it really is that close. It could go either way. Ultimately, I think the EU, there's a danger the EU could overplay their hand. And ultimately, I think if we do get a hard Brexit, to a certain extent, it does play into the Brexiteers' hands because they can point to the fact the EU is being intransigent in the same, in the same way they were again with respect to Greece. And ultimately, I think, you know, the political imperative, they see it, the political imperative, as deterring anyone else from going down this route. But have a look around Europe and the rise of populist parties and make the argument that this sort of this sort of political posturing isn't part of the problem is prime minister may likely to come away with uh, perhaps uh, talks in better shape than when she went to brussels uh, marcus yes i think they will give her that uh, it may well be meaningless but they know the fact that she's this was a, a long planned uh, arrangement dinner apparently though they only chose to make us aware of it uh, yesterday but they, they are, they know, everyone knows how this plays out. It's good cop, bad cop, and everyone goes through the same routine. She has to come back out of this with something. And what she's really saying is, look, I went out on a limb here in the Florence speech and said we would pay you this $20 billion. Whereas previously it had been, you know, zero was the expectations from, from a certain part of her party. She managed to get people up to at least $20 billion, And she went to the EU and said, I cannot go back again without something from you, your side. And so she's going to need more than sort of, oh, we liked your tone a bit more. She's going to need something. And that really has to be uh, discussion on trade starting. She has to have some form of game plan, even if it's just the other 27 nations talking themselves about how they would like a trade deal to be without uh, the UK being in the room. But she needs the trade talks to start. We probably never should have signed up this timetable on the way that EU wanted it to be talked about. And this is, this is ultimately the consequence we're paying for it. But it doesn't make logical sense to agree on a bill up front before you know what you're getting for it. Well, Michael, this is the point, the, isn't it, though? This is the point, isn't it, though, Marcus? I mean, it's like going into a restaurant, OK? And before they let you see the menu, they give you a $100, you know, $100 bill or a $100 you know, bill before you actually see it. It just doesn't work like that. And the Irish border question, I think, it is tied in with the trading relationship completely. completely. So for the EU not to give ground on this would tell me that they're not interested in a deal. Yeah, Michael, uh, among your many friends scattered throughout the financial community in London, how many conversations have you had with others who have either feared or perhaps reveled in the concept that jobs may, might be, will be leaving London for other places, perhaps in Ireland, perhaps mm. in Paris, uh, perhaps uh, in Frankfurt? I don't think anyone has reveled in that. I, th I don't think it's a particularly uh, um, you know, pleasant outcome 
but ultimately I think the financial services industry here in London while probably losing a few jobs to places like Frankfurt, Dublin and Paris I think is more than capable of being able to bounce back and react to any particular outcome short of potentially a Corbyn Labour government, perhaps. Yeah, and Marcus, absolutely no question. <laughs> absolutely no question. It is a given that jobs will be leaving the, the UK capital to go to other places as a result of Brexit. Well, not necessarily. I'm not trying to be dim here. I do that quite well. But there will be some jobs lost. But they, as Michael's pointing out, they'll be replaced by different types of doing things. The city is a highly entrepreneurial place, much more entrepreneurial than anywhere else in the rest of Europe. And because of that, you know, places that you might have thought would attract places, Amsterdam and particularly places like Dublin, don't have the capacity to perhaps take full advantage. And other uh, capitals like Paris are not flexible enough and Germany are not creative enough to be able to perhaps react the same way the city does. So the city will change the way it does business. There will be less European business done in London, for sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the city itself won't ultimately be able to bounce back and, and, and adapt. All right. We will continue the conversation in just a moment. And if the, the mayors of uh, Frankfurt, Dublin and Paris just happen to be listening, I would welcome a call to respond uh, to that remark. The cable continues right here on Bloomberg on DAB. We've got U.S. stocks higher trading at records. More of our conversation continuing right here on The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And The Cable continues. Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow. Good to have you with us uh, on this Monday. Lots going on in markets. Uh, We've got uh, the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ in the U.S. uh, All trading at records right now. We have got uh, the FTSE 100 down one-tenth of one percent. DAX in Germany up by one-tenth of one percent. Brexit is our focus right now, uh, right here on uh, The Cable. And a uh, place I'd like to pick up with uh, Michael Hewson, uh, just in terms of the politics of, of all of this, something that you alluded to in the last segment, but politically, what's at stake for Prime Minister May uh, with these, uh, I suppose specifically with the trip to Brussels right now, but big picture with the negotiations with the European Union? Well, I think her credibility, I mean, it, you know, she she put an awful lot of political capital to, capital into her Florence speech and her offer of 20 billion um, to fund, you know, to fill the funding gap between 2019 and 2021. And if she was to come away from Brussels with absolutely nothing, then ultimately it's going to make it very, very difficult for her to hold the Conservative Party together because on the one hand you will have um, the Brexiteers were saying, well, we should walk away now. And ultimately, we're already having discussions here in the UK with respect to making plans for a walk away. Because I think as we head into 2018, businesses will start to try or start to plan for a hard Brexit. It's already starting. And when we come to 2018, we'll only be 15 months away. Yeah, Marcus, is this a trip that she should have made or should she have stayed home? Well, I don't think she should have signed up to the initial way that this whole process is taking part, and now she's ruining that. But uh, that was a gamble made at the time, um, which is a yet and end, and not proved to be very successful. Uh, but yes, I think she she has to uh, here say, look, I'm making all the all the running here. If you are going to reject me again, then, albeit her predecessor was roundly snubbed to um, you know everyone's loss by uh, Merkel and by Juncker, 
uh, ahead of the referendum and, and lost it as a consequence, I think, directly because of the inability to come back with anything which was showed an upside in staying in Europe. Um, and then it, this is exactly as, as Michael's referring to. There is a chance here for them to, to, to show some willingness. And the new chancellor, a potential chancellor in Austria, clearly is of that sort of opinion that there is uh, flexibility and, and, and pragmatic approach needs to be taken to Europe. Yeah, the, but the, 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 the 31-year-old new chancellor of Europe, speaking of making me feel old, I want to go back to something that uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson said today you about the Brexit both, talks. Charlie. It's unbelievable, right? But Boris Johnson came up with a quote today saying, we're looking for some urgency from our friends and partners, and it is time, I think, to, quote, put a bit of a tiger in the tank and get this, get this thing done. If Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Isn't that a quote that went back to Esso back in the 1960s? Correct, correct right? Correct. Are, are we all that old? Well, I think, Tony well, I, I remember it, Tony the Tiger. Uh, Tony the Tiger, right? No, Tony no, the Tiger. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's that was Frosties. Kellogg. Sorry. But, uh, yeah, it, was but Kellogg. it was it was a tiger. And put, put a tiger a, in your tank. Put a tiger in your tank, yeah. exactly. Now, uh, in terms of the time frame then, what sort of a time frame are we looking at? Is there a drop, absolute drop-dead deadline, or is this a story that you and I, the three of us, are going to be chatting about? Uh, say a year from now, Marcus. I, I think uh, we will, and the whole point is about Brexit. It doesn't just end when technically Brexit anyway, because it's the, the relationship with the EU is so important that this will go on for the rest of our lives. Um, but the point on a timetable: a deal now is worth much more to Theresa May than a deal in six months, and a deal in a year's time is almost worth nothing. So, as far as agreeing trade, there is a point whereby. Uh, corporates have to make a decision on what their contingency plans are. Once they've made, they're very hard to go back on and they'll only continue. So, you know, by the end of this year... Maybe this is part of the EU's policy. Yeah, Michael, go ahead. I've only got about 30 seconds left. Some brief comments just to wrap it up. Go ahead. Sorry, Marcus, to try and basically get more jobs out of the UK um, while they can. Uh, basically string things out. But I can't help thinking this could have been all avoided if Cameron had actually got something with that piece of paper all that time ago back in March 2016. We wouldn't be having all of these concerns about the rise of populism if... You know, if if he'd got something from Merkel. All right. I hear music playing. That's my cue to wrap it up. We will continue in just a moment talking about Spain and Catalonia. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gantfly columnist, and Michael Hewson, chief market analyst at CMC Markets in London. This is The Cable on Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And the cable continues. I'm Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow on a Monday. Just want to update you on Storm Ophelia. It has claimed its first victims in Ireland. Three people dead among uh, some of the worst weather conditions to hit the country in 50 years. Right now we have got U.S. stocks. They are trading at records. Uh, this week, by the way, 30th anniversary of the crash of 87. Uh, remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, we have got uh, European stocks. Mixed picture right here with uh, the FTSE 100 down one-tenth of one percent today. Uh, the CAC in Paris up by two-tenths of one percent. DAX in Germany higher by one-tenth of one percent. Last segment talking extensively about Brexit. Our guests, by the way, most important thing to mention here, we've got Michael Hewson with us, Chief Market Analyst at CMC Markets in London, and Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gantfly columnist. Last segment talking about Brexit. And one could make the case that perhaps there is some link, a degree of relative, uh, relativity here, as we talk about Catalonia. And the Spanish government may begin the process 
of suspending self-rule in Catalonia with days. Spain has rejected the Catalan president's response to demands that he clarify his position on independence. Earlier today, the Catalan uh, president told Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy that he has a mandate to declare independence but wants to have negotiations first. And, uh, Michael, I suppose the place to begin with, the uh, same question that I asked about Brexit uh, in terms of markets. The debate now over Catalonia looked like it was going to be potentially a major market event. In your view, the view from CMC, what does Spain, what does Catalonia mean for markets? It could still be. It could still be. It really depends on how it plays out. Certainly in terms of the Spanish stock market, it's been it's been a, a significant drag on investment into Spanish assets. Um, bond markets probably not so much. I think there is a quiet optimism that um, there will be some form of accommodation. And I think that accommodation will probably culminate in new elections. I think this is where this is going. Um, at the moment, we're in what I would call in a phase of constructive ambiguity when it comes to the Catalan president. I don't think either one of the parties wants to be the first to try and trigger a response, which is why um, the deadline has been extended. But ultimately, I think Mr. Rajoy will probably be forced to trigger Article 155, dissolve the Catalonian parliament and have new elections. But that in itself won't solve the underlying issue. Yeah, Marcus, I like that phrase, constructive ambiguity. Uh, from your view in London, the vantage point there, uh, what are the implications for markets, European markets? Well, I read an article on this of the day, basically saying that um, Spanish bonds are perhaps underreacting now um, to the implication of what's happening. And I, I sort of agree with what Michael's saying. I think it might be a bit early. I think it might be on Thursday that they, they have to push forward on the uh, Article 155 because, in essence, what Madrid's saying to Barcelona is if it's not if it's any other than no, then we're taking it as a yes, uh, as in that you are declaring independence and therefore we will trigger Article 155. Uh, and they have delayed it from Monday to Thursday, but I don't think they'll be wanting to do it uh, any longer. So unless Puigdemont comes up with something which is enough for Madrid to think that the independence claims are over and done with, then uh, I suspect they will have to push ahead. And that will mean uh, almost certainly new elections. And I note that the PSOE, the Socialist Party, are doing ever so slightly better in the polls. They are also uh, against independence. Um, so I don't think politically there'll be a vast amount of change, but if anything, might slightly favor the, uh, the center-left. Yeah, and, uh, Michael, I listened. I was captivated by Puigdemont's speech. Uh, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. But did he, in that speech, effectively move everything to the back burner by focusing on dialogue? Didn't he take the easy way out? Not really, because I think it would have been too easy to go down the hardline route and have the Article 155 triggered. Ultimately, I think... Um, he's been torn, he's been pulled in two directions. If he declares independence straight away, he gets arrested, problem solved, elections. If he tries to string it out a little bit, then ultimately he makes Madrid be the bad guy. Um, so I think that's what it's trying, trying to do at the moment. This is a bit of fencing, shadow boxing, a PR exercise. Spain miscalculated badly when they fired rubber bullets at their voters um, when the initial illegal referendum took place. Um, and, you know, whatever, however this plays out, even if there's a peaceful outcome, 
the aftermath and the aftertaste of that will leave a very bitter taste for quite some time to come. Uh, Marcus, in my introduction, I, I tried to draw a feeble link to Brexit. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is there a link here, at least in terms of the idea of emboldening the Catalan uh, voters? Uh, uh, can you tie the two together? Are they comparable? Well, I, I think it's it, it's perhaps one can see why people voted for Brexit, if this is the way that EU is democracy, but I wouldn't possibly say that. But um, there are obviously issues throughout um, the way the EU handles uh, its control of certain matters. But the EU have been very clear, they're very much behind Madrid on this. This is they view it's very much as an internal Spanish affair and they're not wishing to get involved. Having said that, it's quite clear that uh, the EU Commission leader <laughs> Juncker did call Puigdemont and, and lean very heavily on him. So um, the, the power is ultimately with the European Central Bank and that's something which um, uh, wields the real influence behind the scenes as we saw with uh, replacement of Berlusconi in Italy and obviously with several Greek governments. So um, that, that Europe is, has a big control here, not necessarily always beneficial, depending on your point of view. And Michael, let me throw you a softball here, as we would say in the United States, referring to baseball. But uh, uh, was it Brexit or perhaps the Scottish independent vote that was the catalyst for all of this in Catalonia? I think it was the, uh, that's, a, that's a free hit. Oh, is it? Um, in, in, in cricket as well, <laughs> softball? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Fair or, enough. Or, you know, whatever. But yeah, I think the fact that the UK government uh, allowed the Scottish to have a referendum and that referendum uh, voted in favour of staying part of the union was the catalyst for certainly, I think, what we saw in Catalonia. And I think Madrid's big mistake was they should have allowed them to have the referendum um, because there's no guarantee. And I still don't think there is a majority for Catalonian independence, and we wouldn't be having this discussion now. All right, Michael Hewson, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you so much uh, for your time at the end of a long day. Marcus Ashworth, always a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with us right here on The Cable, our Bloomberg gadfly columnist. We will continue with The Cable in just a moment, looking at the 30th anniversary of the great meltdown of 87. This is The Cable. Charlie Pellet in for Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And uh, The Cable continues. Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow on a Monday. Lots to talk about. Last block, we spent a fair amount of time talking about Catalonia, talking also about Brexit, uh, two stories that no doubt we will be hearing a lot more of in coming weeks and months. And now we switch gears first, a quick update on what is uh, happening in the markets. And by switching gears, of course, I mean talking about the crash of 87 and where we are today with the Dow at 22,906 back then, roughly around 2,000 on the Dow, we're up 35 points right now as U.S. markets uh, push higher, trading at or near records. S&P 500 index just shy, 25.53, up by uh, just about a point right now. NASDAQ higher by 5, 66.10, uh, taking out 6,600 on NASDAQ, 66.10. Uh, we are looking at a record today on the NASDAQ composite index, actually that record uh, above 6,600 coming on Friday. As for European markets, mixed picture right now with the FTSE 100 down 8, down one-tenth of 1%, and uh, we have got the CAC 40 in Paris higher by two-tenths of one percent. The DAX in Germany today up by one-tenth of one percent. Well, joining us now, Alex Steele, host of Bloomberg Daybreak America's Cameron Kreiss, macro man, macro strategist for Bloomberg Radio. I want to take you both back in time. Uh, this week, back in 1987, we had that <laughs> spectacular crash. And you guys know where I'm going with this question because it has to be, what were you doing on that day? Alex Steele, 
Take us back to 1987. Let's see. I was eight. How old are you? What grade are you in? You're in your eight? I, I'm never supposed to get into age, so I was trying to phrase this as delicately as possible, but go ahead. What is eight? Is it like fifth grade? No, no. It's like third grade. Third grade? Yeah. Right on. I was in third grade. I have no idea. But I do remember a lot of the my friend's parents lost a lot of money and were very, very sad and very, very stressed for a very long time. But you, but you do remember that, that, that oh, it was a that. big deal, that something was going on that was a big deal among friends and family. Yeah, I went to a private school in New York, so there was a lot. Uh, there were some people with a ton of money, but back then, it was a lot of working parents, and some of the working parents were on Wall Street, and I had one friend who was a single mom, and she worked on Wall Street, and it was like the end of the world for her family. Cameron Kreiss? Well, I'm a little less well-preserved than Alex, so I went, to, <laughs> I went to uh, state school in South Carolina, which is a, probably a little bit of a different demographic from private school in New York. But uh, So I was 16, and I remember very clearly that it sort of the news that there was a stock market crash sort of permeated the floor of the high school. Obviously, there weren't cell phones or mobile communications, let alone social media at the time, but there were televisions. And obviously, that was the lead story on all the televisions in the in the school. Uh, which they, you know, that I don't know why they would be people would be watching TV, but they did have a few. And uh, yeah, we all heard about it. And then I came home, and you know, I grew up in a middle class family, so it's not like we had this huge equity portfolio. But I remember my dad was pretty irritated. I remember that day too because I happened to I was working for another radio station up the dial, uh, and I actually was down the dial, and I, I just happened to be off on that Monday, and there was a guy who I work with who I thought was a complete idiot. So I would tune into the radio station just to find out what was happening, and I tuned in, and the guy said the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 350 points, and I, I sort of rolled over and said to myself, you idiot, it's down 35.0. It, it can't possibly, <laughs> cannot possibly be down 350 points. Well, turns out maybe he wasn't such an idiot after all. Maybe the stock market really was down 350 at the time, ending with a close that day, uh, down about 508 points. Cameron, go ahead. So the question is, do you still feel that way about your college? Uh, well, no, no. <laughs> Not in this room. Uh, certainly not. No, and let, just let me say, too, the, one of the things that constantly amazes me about Bloomberg is the brilliance of the people that I work with. And that's not a commercial. That that comes from the heart. It really does. Well, I do want to point out that makes me laugh because I would totally think the same thing that Charlie Pellet was thinking if I was home. And then I'd totally have to eat crow for being wrong. Uh, but um, well, Dan Curtis, who is our chart expertise, made a really cool chart on the Bloomberg today. And it basically showed the run for equities, the S&P, 2009 till now. And then uh, for from I think it was 1979 to 1987, just to compare what those two rallies looked like. And we talk about this being an unloved bull market and we're at record high valuations and crazy levels. But if you take a look at those charts, we're like nowhere near what it looked like when uh, the S&P took off in that time. And now the Dow would have to fall like 5,000 points to replicate that kind of right. fall 20, again. 23%, I think, was, I mean, was what it was down that day. 23%. Can you imagine a 5,000 point drop in the Dow? That'd be fun. Yeah, and and yeah, right. And, I know. Part of me is like, all right, something to talk about. And uh, you know, thirty years later, I I just can't help but think, you know, if I had poured every cent and then borrowed a ton of money and just went long on the market back at eighty-seven on that Monday, but uh, uh, twenty-twenty hindsight, as they say. Yeah, Harry hindsight's the best trader I know. <laughs> right, exactly. Is there a divide between old and new markets as a what as a result of what happened in nineteen eighty-seven, or if you trade the market long enough, do you always come up with these imaginary lines? Well, yeah, the, the road to hell is paved, paved with the, the road to investment hell is paved with overlay charts. So you there, you know, you can always find something that that 
that looks superficially similar to the market you're in now, and it usually involves a sharp collapse straight after, because otherwise, what's the point of doing it? You know, you've got to you've got to sell. I would say you have to sell newspapers, but these days you have to get you know you have to get clicks and 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 attention and 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 what have you. But clearly, the the '87 crash did fundamentally change things in the sense that in the option market, for example, we now price this sort of left tail skew that was never really prevalent before. There was a bit, but not nearly to the degree that there is that there has been since, because it 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 really awakened people to the idea that market pricing is not normally distributed as Black Scholes would would uh, as Black Scholes assumes, and that the the deviations from that normal distribution are very marked uh, and they tend to skew towards towards the left. And if you don't reflect that in option pricing, you will go out of business. Yeah. Uh, Alex, one of the things that market pros will tell you is they don't pay a lot of attention to big round numbers. It seems very popular, though, for people who are consuming news, especially with financial markets. They like Dow 10K, Dow 20K, Dow 30K and beyond. The guests that you had on Daybreak Americas, the people that you'd be talking to this week, do you think that this is something that they're going to have any interest or perhaps are they, are they too young to remember the significance of 1987? Did, did the crash of 87 even come up on today's show? Well, yeah, to those who were around when it happened. And then we had to find other ways to cover it at that point. But uh, I forget who was on a few weeks ago, but someone made the point that the major, a lot of the traders who are in there now are so young they've never been through a market meltdown. Like, they didn't even live through 2007. Yeah, I mean, anyone so who's like, less than 30 years old wasn't around for the financial crisis. Right, so they don't even... Wow. So we're like way past like 87. We're more like, you don't even remember 2007. So the idea being that we don't actually know how people will trade when a, if and when a crash actually winds up coming. And I'm still thinking about the dot-com bust. I remember that day watching Dating Delegan. yourself, yeah, yeah, I know. But, but if you really want to get scared, just consider that one of the other issues with uh, around the 87 crash was that a hurricane hit London. And Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, a true fact. And if you look uh, at the weather report now in the UK, uh, that, that, that you've got yeah, the like hurricane. Super superstitious, right? right? Yeah, well, yeah. Like that like resonates for me. And I mean, I, I looked at the S and P 500 PE in the in the immediate uh, run up to the 87 crash, and that was about 23 and a half, and we're at 21.8 now. So, yeah. valuation level were superficially similar. You've got the hmm. the crazy weather in, I, the, I, in and, the UK, and I didn't make the connection about the timing, but I remember being in the UK shortly after that hurricane because a big topic of conversation in the papers was whether meteorologists, how did meteorologists miss such a massive storm and turned out that it, it was a hurricane that uh, that hit the UK. We will continue. I want to talk a little bit more about 1987. Uh, think about this question as, uh, when we come back. Why do bad things seem to happen to markets in October? And is it likely to happen this October? Or have things changed? Is it really that different? We will continue right here on The Cable. Charlie Peladin for Jonathan Farrow on this Monday here. U.S. equities trading at records with the Dow up 34 now, up one-tenth of one percent. And the FTSE, keep that music going, FTSE and 100 down one-tenth of one percent. This is The Cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. 
One of the things I like about filling in for Jonathan Farrow on the cable is the great music coming in and out of the segments. Uh, a group called The Knack, I believe. The song My Sharona going way back, possibly uh, possibly to the 80s, or huh? definitely the 80s. No, maybe the 70s. It might have been 79. It was either 79 or 80. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that song. <laughs> Uh, here we are talking about uh, the anniversary of the crash of 87, and uh, right now we have got U.S. stocks trading at a record. Amazing, as I mentioned at the open there, the, the Dow back then, uh, right around uh, 2,000. It uh, was down 508 points that day to 1738, but right now uh, the Dow at a record, S&P pushing higher, NASDAQ is also at a record. Can't figure out what makes me feel older knowing that a 31-year-old has been elected the Chancellor of Austria or that it has been 30 years this week since the crash of 1987. Cameron Kreis, uh, uh, our guest on the program, along with Alex Steele from Bloomberg Television. Cameron, why do bad things seem to happen to markets in October? That's a good question. It, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, in the sense that even dating back to the to the crash of 1929, you know, there's a sense of foreboding. But interestingly, even though the, the most famous crashes have happened in October, seasonally the performance in September is actually worse on aggregate. If you go go back to the dis, you know the distant misty depths of time, uh, and and taught up the uh, the average return, it's actually obviously the stock, U.S. stock market's gone up on average uh, over over long periods of time, but it's actually gone down on average in September. Whereas in October, it's gone up a little, even when you include these uh, these various crashes. So. You know, there's a, a statistical principle of small sample size, and to some extent, that might be what's going on here. It could just be a, a coincidence. Um, you know, let's not forget we had a flash crash in May of 2010 that you know we can right. kind of just wipe right. a, you know wipe aside. But 87, 29, and then obviously then in 2008, you could say it was September and October and November and December. Well, it certainly does that, feel... That, uh, that, yeah, that crash. It certainly does feel a lot different uh, this time around, Alex Steele. Uh, well, what, what's driving the market? And is that likely to get us through the, uh, uh, through, uh, the end of October, through Halloween? If I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here on radio. I'd be going out and making money. Um, but to your point, so what everyone's going to say is uh, fundamental earnings growth, yada, yada, yada. All right, low My, interest rates... Low interest rates, but what what I struggle with is if I take a look at a chart of uh, the Russell, so small caps versus small cap earnings expectations, they've totally diverged. This is one of my favorite charts. So uh, small caps had a huge run. You can obviously say, okay, tax reform in the last few weeks, but earnings expectations have come down. So those who come on the show and say that earnings are driving the market, I'm saying, well, then explain this. And then it's always like, oh, well, it's just small caps. It's just a small portion of the market that's that's in relation to D.C. And I don't know if I buy it yet. And we've seen that just a beat from earnings is not enough to deal with where we are in the market. Like, look at banks. Aside from Wells, like, look at banks. They did pretty well, and stocks really didn't do anything. Well, in the case of small caps, I think it was a popular underweight or short. So to some extent, the, the nosebleed rally was reflecting actually a pain trade. In so mm -hmm. far, in so far as people were covering, you know, once the price starts to rise on sort of the tax cut narrative or whatever, people are sort of forced to buy in almost regardless of the underlying quality or or, or, um, or story of of the of the of the earnings trajectory. Which, which, to your point, it brings up the rebalancing. So maybe it's just also you got to rebalance the end of the year. I mean, fourth quarter ends real fast. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, but but if it was a short covering. Then you know, an ex to, to an extent, small caps are at sort of a wily coyote mm -hmm. moment where they're sort of uh, 
there's nothing underneath them to support the current valuations. Yeah. So, you know. As the earnings revisions do, I mean, fair. Like, they go lower, you don't have to have a huge beat to get any juice. But nonetheless, like, the outlook for them, not so great. All right. And, Alex, to your point, I, I managed to use the word record uh, a couple of times in the introduction here and so far on this program, at least for the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ. But Russell 2000, it is lower today by two-tenths of 1%. As the cable continues, we're going to get into U.S. tax policy and U.S. interest rate policy. Fed Chair Janet Yellen speaking over the weekend. I'll tell you a little bit more about what she had to say. U.S. stocks are at records. We've got the tenure down 4.30 seconds at yield 2.29%. S&P up a point higher by about one-tenth of 1%. FTSE 100 lower today by one-tenth of 1%. I'm Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow, and this is The Cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And we are back with The Cable, continuing on a Monday. Uh, good day. Uh, we are here in uh, New York. Our programming uh, heard across the United Kingdom. We have got uh, the Dow, the United, uh, Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, all lower in the U.S. right now. But let's focus on what's happening with the FTSE 100, down one-tenth of 1%. European stocks really mixed uh, on this Monday. CAC 40 in Paris, up two-tenths of 1%. DAX in Germany, uh, down by about one-tenth of 1%. Let's talk taxation policy in the U.S. and what that potentially means for markets. Lots of unknowns, but a White House study uh, says that cutting the corporate tax rate to 20% would increase average household income by at least $4,000 a year. The study released by President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors, it says that kind of wage growth would take several years to go into effect. We're back with Alex Steele, host of uh, Daybreak Americas on Bloomberg Television. Cameron Kreiss, who you see often on Bloomberg Television, macro man, macro strategist for Bloomberg. Well, Alex, who doesn't want to see a little more money in their paycheck? Uh, but is this perhaps just a, a sales pitch to get it done, or will the devil wind up being in the details? Of course, it's a sales pitch. I asked that to Gary Cohn when I would talk to him a few weeks ago about tax reform. It was Jobs Day or something. And he got into the tax reform spiel and I'm about Trump going around and selling it. And I'm like, everyone and their mother wants tax reform. Like, no one's debating whether or not we want it. It's just, how do you get it? Um, I mean, the people that we wind up talking to is that you get something because of the stress of the midterms, but that it's going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be what we see today. At all. Yeah, but for the Council of Economic Advisors, Cameron, to put a number on that, that that's a pretty smart and influential group of people uh, that would come out with a number like that. Yeah, but come on, there's, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. And what's the uh, year Benjamin for that? $4,000 in 25 years. You'll, yeah, you'll, uh, you'll get mean, that benefit. Let, let's have a look at, at U.S. corporate history over the last, say, 10 to 20, 30 years. Every time that they get more revenue, post-tax revenue, do they, A, retain it, or B, pass it on to the employees. I would submit to you, Charlie and Alex, that the weight of history strongly suggests that they would retain it, give it to shareholders as opposed to employees. If we look at, uh, on a macro level, the labor income share of GDP, it's, it's basically at the lows. Corporate profit share of GDP is basically at the highs. So, of course, uh, to stimulate the economy, you give corporations more uh, more money post-tax, which, listen, if you are a shareholder, is fantastic. If you're one of the, you know, Joe Bloggs employees, in perhaps, you know, you can dream, but it, it may it may never come to fruition. So if tax reform happens, I can't count on a bigger bonus. You can ask Mike, but I'm not... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going there. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, he's right over there. You can walk over to, right. uh, but, to but, his desk but, there. But Alex, corporate taxes, for all of the corporate executives that you talk to, how much of, a, of an uncertainty is this? 
So what we've heard, and more prevalent was when uh, Marion Lake on J.P. Morgan mm-hmm. CFO talked on the conference call about growth, is that businesses don't appear to be making decisions either way. That it's not holding back investment, but it's not spurring investment. Now, economists say that the one thing that would be different is the CapEx uh, deduction for five years. So that could be something, but that you might not get it. That it might not even make it through the end. But that's maybe the one thing that you could look to that might actually stimulate some kind of growth. But then I also think, like, well, there's been the cost of capital so low that if you were going to build a plant, you would have built a plant. Like, what company out there, what what even small businesses out there that, like, doesn't have the money and say, oh, man, if I could just have a lower tax rate, boom, I would open that store. And if you look at capacity utilization, um, which admittedly is more of a manufacturing thing than an economy-wide thing, it's still relatively low on an historical basis. So it's there's already sort of plants sitting there idle. So why you would need to invest in new ones is... Uh, and, and then for different. retail, which you could say is the sector that, that's really hurt, right? You're losing a lot of jobs and stuff. It's not going to make. It's not going to save Nordstroms when they already said that they're having problems like obtaining financing, and that's why they're going to shut their process to look for a sale over the next few months because Amazon's right there. So like, that has nothing to do with corporate tax rate. That has to do with Amazon. Well, if anything, it it, it make it makes puts Amazon in a, in a better position, right? Because they're right. the ones who they are investing. Uh, to drive everyone else out of business, apparently. But then there was a report, I forget who wrote it, I'm sorry about that, maybe it was RBC, that said that if you do get a 20% corporate tax rate, Apple would be a $1 trillion company. Interesting. So, I mean, it's out there, people who think it. Right, and then it raises the question in terms of market implications, Cameron, how much of this starts to become priced in? Or again, does this get back to the point about once we get more details, once we know a lot, uh, then perhaps then the market will catch up with reality? Yeah, I mean, this, this is the, the, great, uh, the great debate. How do we know how much of the tax business is priced? And the thing that I generally look at is a ratio of companies with high tax bills to the overall S&P index. And on that basis, there's almost nothing priced. Because um, you know we were kind of back to pre-election levels, having had a nice bounce initially after the election, and then saw that peter out, and then another smaller bounce in August, September. And that's again sort of petered lower. Supposedly the index is sort of sector neutral, although you you know you um, you can never be too sure. But listen, based on the empirical evidence we've had for the last 10, 11 months. Is it any wonder that people aren't pricing much policy reform when we've not actually gotten any All right, guessing game here. Uh, And maybe you guys have seen the number, maybe you haven't. H&R Block Stock, either one of you care to take a guess as to what this stock is either up or down year to date. H&R Block, of course, the big tax preparer in the United States. Theoretically, wouldn't you think that would be linked to tax reform? I would say flat. Flat on the year, Cameron? I would guess up because everything's up. Uh, And up by how much? Uh, you, you can't just say up. You got to give me a number well, in there. Well, listen, if you've been long since the beginning <laughs> of the year, I mean, you're, you're quids in, right? I'll say up fifteen percent. Up, up ten and a half percent year to date. for the win. But, 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 but up ten and a half percent. Wouldn't you think that this would be a company whose fortunes would be greatly impacted by tax reform? Well, yeah. I mean, supposedly, you know, if you believe Gary Cohn and and, and the rest of the tax guys, that. Most American families would be able to fill out their tax reform on a single page, which presumably you wouldn't need H&R Block to do that for you. But, uh, you know, again, I'll believe it when I say it. All right. Alex, any final comments? Because we are done. The music's playing. Oh, yeah. I was going to say effective tax rate. I want to see what that index that Cameron looks at, if you can adjust for effective tax rate instead. 
Okay. All right. We'll work on that. You can't get no satisfaction on that one. Alex Steele, host of Bloomberg Daybreak Americans, uh, America's Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist for Bloomberg, and also cannot forget our Caroline O'Brien, making sure that we get everything on the air perfectly, as always. The Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ pushing higher. Charlie Peloton for Jonathan Farrell. Thank you for joining us right here on The Cable. This is Bloomberg on DAB. Bloomberg.